Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 125th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, a digital forensics, cybersecurity, and information technology firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is, Is This How the World Ends? Artificial Intelligence and American Security. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsor, We'd like to thank our sponsor, PINow.com. If you need a private investigator you can trust, visit PINow.com to learn more. Today, we are lucky to have as our guest Brigadier General Patrick Houston. He is stationed in the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. as the Assistant Judge Advocate General. He's keenly focused on privacy and the legal and ethical development of artificial intelligence, robotics, autonomy, cybersecurity, and other emerging technologies. He was also the commanding general of the federal government's only ABA-accredited law school. Welcome to the podcast, General. Thanks, John. Thrilled to be here for the 125th episode. <laughs> yes, you struck a good one there. <laughs> Welcome very much. We're, we're delighted to have you. John gave you a brief introduction, but maybe you should surprise me. What, what can you tell our listeners about you that's not in your bio? Well, Sharon, I'll tell you three things. First, I'm a human rights lawyer. I've spent most of my career focused on enforcing international humanitarian law and protecting civilians and, and privacy out there. The second thing is that I'm a near pacifist. Uh, I'm not a true pacifist in the absolute sense of the word, but I'm about as close as you can get. I firmly believe in using military force only as a last resort. And I'll, I'll tell you that my view on this has been shaped by my experiences as both a soldier and a lawyer. Uh, most soldiers who have seen combat are eager to avoid it. And as a lawyer, I believe in the rule of law and, and international law is very clear that military force should be used only as a last resort. And I, I take these two things that I'm a, a human rights lawyer and a near pacifist because they're not typically traits that most people associate with an army general. But I want to make sure you understand my perspective. The third thing I'll add in here is really just a standard disclaimer that I'm going to share my personal views today, and they won't necessarily reflect the official Army or Pentagon policy, but you will get my candid feedback. <laughs> I'm sure of that. <laughs> well, I'm just curious. Is it a good thing for advancement in the Army to be a near pacifist? I don't know. Ask me tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> or on the, the next time you're a guest on the podcast, right? <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> well, General, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are, are, are very curious about what your role is at the Pentagon. So could you tell, expand a little bit about what, what you do and, and how the law and technology fit into your job? Sure. As, as you said, I'm an Army lawyer, and I absolutely love this stuff where you find the intersection of the law and technology. But the Pentagon itself is the world's number one AI user. And we're also America's number one employer with 3 million employees out there. We have about a, a thousand formal AI programs that affect everything we do from the front lines to our back offices. And then we also have one of the world's largest and oldest legal teams with 5,000 attorneys 
including several like myself who are working on these AI and technology issues out there. And I find that there are myths out there about what the Pentagon's doing in this space, Terminator and, and, and things like that. So I like to address them head on. I'm a believer that America's economic prosperity and our national security go hand in hand. And I think that the Pentagon needs to work closely with private industry and the academic community across the country in order to be successful. And this is just a good opportunity to talk about these things. Well, as you know, General, there's an awful lot of concern about autonomous artificial intelligence weapons, the uh, the Terminators, the killer robots, uh, they, they seem to grab a lot of screen time. So let me just dive in by asking you, is this how the world ends? Uh, no. <laughs> you may expand. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, no. Thank goodness, no, I don't think that's how the world's going to end. But it's, that's exactly the sort of myth that's out there that I, that I like to put to rest. And I, I want to put what the military, what the Pentagon is doing in context to talk about this. The vast majority of our military AI programs are benign, innocuous. They're really not controversial at all. You know, we're a big bureaucracy. We, we use AI to streamline operations and reduce costs. And you know, let me give you a couple of examples of that. The first is AI-powered smart maintenance programs. And let me explain this in case you're not familiar with them. My last two cars were a pickup truck and a BMW. And the maintenance on the pickup truck was simple. I changed the oil every 5,000 miles, period. The BMW is different. It has an AI-powered smart maintenance system that tells me when to change the oil to, to minimize costs. And if I change the oil too soon, I'm just wasting time and money. But of course, if I wait too long, then I risk a breakdown and huge repair costs. So the BMW system monitors how I drive and the operating conditions. Am I harsh or gentle or are the conditions really, really terrible? And then it compares my driving to all the other BMWs out there and, and their maintenance costs and their drivers and their repair data. And it tells me exactly when to change the oil to optimize the costs. So, so that's kind of a smart maintenance in a nutshell. But let me tell you why that matters at the Pentagon. We have thousands of ships and boats, tens of thousands of planes and helicopters, and hundreds of thousands of tanks, trucks, and other ground vehicles that are out there. And by using smart maintenance, we can literally save billions in taxpayer dollars. So it should be obvious why we want to do that. Another example, and this one's from the legal field, is e-discovery. You know, we've all seen the impact of e-discovery on our litigation practices. Instead of the old days where we would send associates into some dark room to sift through bankers' boxes full of files, AI-powered e-discovery tools can sift through terabytes of data, files, emails, far faster and far more effectively. They can detect relevant and responsive documents. Um, multiple copies of the same email is delete all, all the unnecessary ones. It can flag privileged information to not be disclosed to opposing counsel. And it does all these things far faster, far cheaper, and far more reliably than the human associates out there. So, uh, again, these are examples of the vast majority of our military AI projects. The, the Pentagon is just leveraging these AI tools to be more effective, more efficient, and to reduce costs out there, just like most large organizations across the country. Well, General, let's let's expand a little bit more and talk about the the weapon systems. Uh, e even though it's it's just a small 
part of, of the Pentagon's overall AI effort, I'm sure it's probably pretty scary to, to those folks that, that really don't understand it. What, what about those killer robots that Sharon talked about? Now, that, that's a fair question, John, and it's one you know, we get out there. I will tell you that the Pentagon has devoted a lot of time and effort to make sure that we do this properly, absolutely correctly. We are completely committed to the legal and ethical development and use of, of weapons. A couple other things about there. We're very careful to strike the balance between autonomous systems and then human decision-making. Uh, the Pentagon rules require us to exercise appropriate human control over the systems and then full human accountability for employing those systems. I'll tell you, these autonomous weapon systems out there have the capacity to be very effective. They, they can change the speed and the nature of war. And in a global competition, that's really important. Everything's relative. You, you, you can't fall behind your opponents out there. I'm competitive, very competitive. I, I like to win. And I feel like I owe it to the American people to ensure that America's military is ready to win so that we can avoid a war through deterrence. So that's kind of the background here, but I want to share some insights specifically into these weapons efforts out there. As I said, in context, AI weapons are only a small portion of our AI projects. And many of those weapons projects are actually defensive weapon systems that, that really aren't controversial. And I'm going to give you an example of one. Anyone who's been to Iraq or Afghanistan is familiar with a system called the CRAM. It stands for the Counter Rocket Artillery and mortar system. And what it is, it's this system that scans the sky with a radar for incoming rockets or artillery that are being shot from the enemy at you. And when it finds one, it does three things at the same time. First of all, there's a loudspeaker that goes off and, and says, take cover, incoming rounds. Everyone calls this the big voice. Uh, at the same time, there's a radar that locks onto the incoming rocket. And then third, there's a machine gun that starts firing to hit this incoming a rocket in the air and hopefully detonated in the air. And all of this happens simultaneously in just a few seconds, far faster than any human could ever uh, make, any, make any decisions here, because that's really all the time you have with an incoming artillery round. And as I said, we've been using these defensive systems for years, and there's really no controversy there. But it's, it's really the autonomous offensive weapons that could detect and select targets on their own that have people very uncomfortable because of the potential and risk for errors here. And that's what drives the controversy. And that's really what gets 100% of the attention here. I'll tell you that we recognize these risks in the Pentagon and we're very careful to follow both the law, uh, but also higher ethical standards. Well, I hope that's true <laughs> because I know a lot of people worry about it. How is the Pentagon dealing with the risks of these AI weapons? And, and if I can ask another question in context with that, it, and what about other countries? I mean, I don't have to tell you that some are pretty much moral renegades. They may not follow the same rules or comply with the law. What do we do then? Now, I, you know, the U.S. military, we follow the law. That, that's who we are. That's how we operate. You know, that's why we have so many lawyers. And I'm very proud of our legal team and our commanders, our clients out there who are always always willing to take the high road. You are right though, Sharon, there's always the risk of non-compliance out there. You've got terrorist groups, rogue nations, they're not gonna follow the rules. But honestly, that, that's nothing new. We've experienced that throughout history and it doesn't change our obligation to follow the law or, or nor does it affect our commitment to do so. 
what I will say is that it makes it harder for us to win when we're playing by the rules and our adversaries are not. And, and I really think that's what drives us to ensure that we're doing everything we can within the rules to get every advantage that we can, technological or otherwise, to maintain our strength and to defend the U.S. And, and that's exactly where AI comes in because it's so powerful. And these AI tools can improve everything that we do out there. And I really feel we have an obligation to the American people to try to leverage them to, to maintain our strength. Well, General, you've, you've mentioned winning several times so far. How, how would you define winning in, in this particular context? Yeah, I, I, sh- I should have clarified that, John. And, and, and I'll say that winning means never fighting. All right. I, I, like I said, I'm a near pacifist, uh, but I'm also a realist. And I believe in having a strong military to deter aggression. And if we have the strength that effectively def- deters potential adversaries out there, then we never have to use any weapons. And that is by far the best possible type of victory. That, that's exactly what we're shooting for. So, so I start with the premise that we need to have effective weapons in order to maintain the peace. And as I said, not only do I think that autonomous weapons can improve our capabilities and make us stronger, I actually think that they can also make warfare more humane or, or less inhumane because warfare is, is not a particularly humane endeavor. And we're looking at ways that we can leverage AI to improve battlefield awareness. And that should be able to help us reduce one of the great tragedies of war, which is civilian casualties by, by misidentification out there. Uh, and some think, some have argued that we even have an ethical obligation to pursue that, that type of capability if technology allows it. I will say, I, I, I don't want to be naive about this. I know that we can't just wander around sprinkling AI pixie dust on, and everything's going to be better. There are definitely risks out there, including the risks of autonomous weapon systems that could you know, potentially be you lose control of them, uh, but we have to take those risks into consideration and account for them and factor them in. Uh, but even with those risks, I believe that strength in the hands of responsible nations like the U.S. contributes to global stability and peace. And that may sound counterintuitive to some, but, but I will say that peace through strength and deterrence is a proven strategy. You're sort of quoting, sort of, for more games, the only winning move is not to play. <laughs> you stole my line. I was going to say that. <laughs> We've been married too long, John. And we all agree. <laughs> yes, we do all agree. So they got it, they got it right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I guess we're near pacifists, too. <laughs> well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is, Is This How the World Ends? Artificial Intelligence and American Security. 
Our guest is Brigadier General Patrick Houston, who is stationed in the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., as the Assistant Judge Advocate General. He is keenly focused on privacy and the legal and ethical development of artificial intelligence, robotics, autonomy, cybersecurity, and other emerging technologies. He was also the commanding general of the federal government's only ABA-accredited law school. So, General, some Silicon Valley workers have suggested rather firmly that AI should not be used in war and that their companies should be boycotting military applications. How do you answer their concerns? Sharon, I actually think that their concerns are valid, but I just completely disagree with their solution. I am familiar with the background on this. And as you said, there were some tech company employees who threatened to boycott work with the U.S. military because they were concerned about how the AI might be used. And and again, I I think that's a fair concern. I don't think they fully understood what would and would not be done with the technology and that contributed to their discomfort. So even though their concerns weren't completely accurate, I vehemently disagree with their approach. In fact, I think that a boycott would have the opposite impact of of what they had intended it. Uh, The way I see it, if the best and brightest AI developers out there who are concerned about ethics boycott AI projects with the governments, especially governments that are compliant with the law, then that's going to create a void. And that's going to be filled by developers who are less capable or less ethical. And I think that would be a true disaster. But what I will say is that they did manage to get the attention of a lot of people, get us to focus on this. And that's a good thing. I was at a conference in Washington a little over a year ago where the Secretary of Defense and the former CEO of Google both talked about this. And they emphasized how important it is for private industry and the government to work together to solve these problems. And really, those concerns led to the Pentagon's publication of AI ethics principles a year ago that that really demonstrate our commitment to doing the right thing, both legally and ethically here. And, And I think that really helped put the issue to rest. Uh, But I think the underlying concerns are valid and we've addressed them. You know, it's funny because we must have been related in some former life because I wrote down in my notes, if the best and brightest boycott this AI, that's problematic, which is pretty much what you ended up saying. Sharon, I think you're absolutely brilliant. And I agree. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, that makes two of us, General. <laughs> well, well, General, you, you obviously eat, breathe, and sleep AI. So our listeners, I'm sure, be very, very interested in any tips or suggestions you have for companies or law firms that, that are adopting artificial intelligence. Yeah, John, I would offer three tips out there, kind of from the practical side. Number one is building multidisciplinary AI teams. These could include technical experts, such as coders and data scientists, but you want to marry them up with lawyers and AI ethicists. And this allows everyone to get together and provide their input from their perspective at all stages in the AI adoption process. And and this team can also either develop or if it already has them to to implement AI ethics principles that we talked about, like transparency, avoiding AI bias, ensuring human oversight, et cetera, in there. I would say we successfully employed this model with the Army's AI task force and we've also seen it used by some of the, uh, the, the technology giants out there like Google and Microsoft. Seem to be a pretty, pretty proven tool. Uh, the second tip I have is something called human-machine teaming. And this is where we combine humans and machines in a way that, that leverages the respective strengths of both. 
The third tip I have is cybersecurity. And I'll tell you, this one's often overlooked. A winning strategy, we all know, has to have a strong offense and a strong defense. And many organizations are savvy enough to, to leverage AI to, to get ahead of the competition. And that's their offense. Um, but the corresponding defense really needs to be a strong cybersecurity plan. And that's because these expanded AI systems increase our vulnerabilities. They expose organizations to increased risks of, of cyber intrusion, data theft, system disruption by, by a host of threats that are out there. But as I said, cybersecurity is often just an afterthought to an AI adoption plan, but it really should be an integral part of any organization's AI strategy. It, it has seemed to me, General, like the critics of artificial intelligence often see it as, as a choice between humans or AI being in charge. So I really like what you talked about with human-machine teaming. Can you elaborate a little more on that? Yeah, I, I think you hit it on the head, Sharon, with, with some people think it's a choice. I, I, I sense that you disagree with that. I certainly disagree with the two. I think that's a false dichotomy. I mean, we all know that, that humans are better than machines in some things. You, judgment, empathy, and leadership. Maybe they'll catch up someday, but they certainly have not at this point. But there are other places where the machines can outperform us humans. They can analyze lots of data, conduct fast computations, do boring, repetitive tasks consistently again and again, where, where you and I would get bored and, and lose interest and, and start, uh, start missing things. So really, the key, in my view, to successfully adopting AI is to combine humans and machines in a way that, as I said, leverages the respective strengths of each. And that's, it's a simple concept, but again, some people out there will, will suggest that it's an either or choice. You have to choose one or the other. And as I said, that's a false dichotomy. You can have both and you can have the best of both. Generally, you mentioned a, a shift in how technology is, is developed and, and that it's really easy for, for companies to, to work with the government. But I think a, a lot of our listeners would find that surprising. How can you share with them some ideas on that? Yeah, this is a, actually, I'm glad you raised this, John, because it's a, it, it, I'm not only do I find it interesting, but I'm kind of a geek in this area. I think it's important, particularly for the lawyers out there. Uh, and to just to kind of paint the picture here, I'll say that technology used to be driven largely by the Pentagon and defense spending back in the 20th century. But that was the old model where technology was developed for the military over a decades long process using an industrial age model. It was very slow, but it did produce impressive results. Um, you know, think of like the stealth bomber, all sorts of other technological areas where this was employed in the 20th century. You had nuclear technology, the space race, computers, GPS, even the internet itself, all of it was, was high tech that was developed for the military and later migrated for civilian use. But that, this is the paradigm shift. Our current 21st century model is the exact opposite. Most of the new technology out there is being developed by the private industry or commercial markets. You know, think about AI, encryption, collaborative robots, 5G communications, 6G communications now, all of this being rapidly developed by the giants like Microsoft and Apple and Google, but also by hundreds of small innovative startups, Silicon Valley and elsewhere across the country. And they're doing all of this at the speed of market, super fast. And then the military comes in, we shop for the tech that we need, we buy it from the private companies, and then we integrate it into our military programs. So 
So this is a change, but what's the takeaway for lawyers and companies out there? I would say forget everything you've ever heard about government contracting and red tape. We have switched to a totally different model because this requires a new government contracting process to keep pace with these rapid technological changes and the changing face of the companies that we're dealing with out there from the, from the big, huge defense giants to these tech startups. And what we're seeing are new streamlined contracts that are far easier, faster, and more flexible. And again, I think this is great news for both lawyers and their corporate clients because it opens up a massive, lucrative market in defense technology. You know, General, there are a lot of people who work for legal tech startups that listen to this podcast. Is there a resource that you would send them to so that they could learn more about this? Yeah, we have a list of websites that try to, it's like a match.com for military requirements <laughs> and, and vendors or small contractors or startups that might have products that satisfy those needs. Um, it's, a, it's a list of websites. I can get it to you after this and post it perhaps on, on the website. Yes, we can put it in the description. That would be great. So, so another question that I have for you is what technology most concerns you and what keeps you up at night? And then I'll tell you if you and I have the same answer. <laughs> okay, so, so you want me to publicly reveal my nightmares, is that right? <laughs> yes, uh, that's ex it exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I will tell you that my top concern is deep fake videos that are out there. Uh, these are the videos that are either created from scratch or, or altered to look real. Um, this technology started as Hollywood special effects, uh, but in my view, it now threatens to disrupt both our judicial system and global stability. And as a lawyer or military officer, uh, those threats concern me greatly. You know, this, this AI technology is, is drifted outside the entertainment industry, and it's now readily available to anyone out there, a teenager in a garage, cyber criminals across the world. Let me give you an example of something we saw not too long ago. There was a, a British executive of, a, of an energy company. He received a call from his CEO in Germany, whose voice he recognized. And the CEO told him they were having a problem with their main distributor, and they needed to immediately wire about a quarter million US dollars or the Euro equivalent of that to their supplier. And as you might've guessed, it wasn't really the German CEO on the phone. It was a cyber criminal that was using deep fake voice impersonation software. And that money actually went right into the pockets of the cyber criminals out there. And that's just with a voice deep fake. So here's my prediction for our audience out there. Coming soon to a courtroom near you, deep fake evidence. And you're going to see it in both civil and criminal cases, any place where the stakes are high. And obviously, manufactured evidence can erode the integrity of our judicial system out there. A picture used to be worth a thousand words, and a video was worth a million. Uh, but with deepfake technology, seeing is no longer believing. And you carry that over onto the grand international scale. And we've seen sophisticated election interference and deepfake propaganda. And so the key takeaway from my perspective is that deep fakes pose a significant threat to national security and global stability. And I really don't mean to be hyperbolic about this, but I'm concerned that they could undermine confidence in governments around the globe and truly disrupt world order. 
I do think that's really interesting because I too worry a lot about deep fakes, even though 96% of them are sexual in nature, but that doesn't mean it's going to stay that way. And unfortunately, the 4% that are around have done a great deal of damage already. And, and I agree about the judicial system and, and democracy. And you won't be surprised that we, John and I lecture about that British CEO and the cheerleader mom, uh, more recently that one. Mm-hmm. But I think what I worry the most about is the awesome power and sometimes awful power of artificial intelligence, the kind of thing that Elon Musk would worry about. I worry about a lunatic having access to that kind of power and a, a, a effectively a button to push. I think that's a that's a fair concern. You know, we, we've we've looked at a, tons of different scenarios, um, and, and we try to create solutions that can can cut off the, those uh, irresponsible uses out there. But there's no guarantee with with AI or any other technology out there. But I think that's a fair concern too. Well, well, General, I'm, I'm going to tee you up for one one final one here, and give us your final thoughts f- for the audience. Well, I, I will tell you, I, I I love what I do, John. This has been a, a, a lot of fun. Uh, being on your show here today, uh, but I love what I do every day, and, and I, I I would like to offer to our to the lawyers or law students out there in the audience that that practicing law in this area is a lot of fun. We have one of the oldest, largest, and most diverse law firms out there. We we were established in 1775, and our first client is a guy named General George Washington, which I think is <laughs> is pretty cool. We've grown over the past two and a half centuries to over 5,000 lawyers, and we're always hiring great lawyers, both full and part-time positions. So I'll tell anyone out there in the audience, if you're interested, just Google Army Lawyer or go to your website and look me up, and I'll be happy to steer them in the right direction. But I really appreciate you having me on the show. It's been a blast. Well, it's been a blast for us, too. We want to thank you for being our guest today. We knew when we had heard you at ABA Tech Show, and then I had the honor of of having you as a podcast guest uh, at one of the On the Road po- podcasts, and, and it, that was just a marvelous experience. Uh, and this has been a lot of fun, so I think it was serendipity that our paths cross. <laughs> thank you for being with us so much, General. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or an Apple podcast. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and cybersecurity services at SENSEIENT.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.